Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. The 2020 Elixir ecosystem survey results are in, and were released at the ElixirConf 2020 conference, and they're available online now. So we have a link to that in the show notes where you can see the responses from the community. And there's also a link to where you can get the raw CSV data behind the results, which could be interesting as well. I don't know that there's anything that jumped out to me immediately as being a surprise, but I do think it's interesting seeing um, some of the demographics of our community and languages that people are coming from when they're exploring Elixir. So it's worth checking out. One interesting stat from that survey that I, I thought was interesting was the percentage of very senior developers using Elixir. So it's, it's, very, it's heavily weighted towards folks that, that have been around for a while. So I, th- I thought that was pretty interesting. Maybe we should like focus on bumping up those, those junior counts, you know? <laughs> but but uh, I think that's a good sign. So when, when somebody appreciates Elixir, you know that they've been around the block a time or two. Maybe they, maybe they know what they're talking about. And maybe that's why they enjoy Elixir. I don't know, just a guess. There's a new PR from Jose Valim that was merged recently that takes some first steps into introducing a type hint system. This might be the first steps towards something, or it might just be better logging when you do something wrong in Elixir. Time will tell. Uh, There's a new library out for Ecto. Um, This one's called Ecto Commons. Um, All it is is just collecting common Ecto validations that you've probably written in several of your projects already. Um, Some of these validators, I think right now it just includes validators. We'll see how it grows. And some examples are validating some dates, some times, uh, email address, URLs, postal codes, uh, the LUN numbers for like credit card validations. So yeah, if you've written a bunch of Ecto validations or conforming values uh, in your change sets, then this looks like a good library to contribute to. Check it out. What I think is helpful about this one is I've seen a lot of people struggle. And I've, you know, when I was learning Elixir, especially with, with things like Timex libraries, and you're trying to do date comparisons, where a date is actually a struct, and you're just trying to compare structs, and you don't necessarily get the behavior you expect. And so this date validation, you know, takes some of that precision into account, where you're talking about, you know, do I care about comparing this to the second, to the minute, to the hundredth of a second? So I think that's a, a great step. Yeah, it looks like their date time validator, or date validator, is like it either is on a date, it has a, a delta option, yeah, so you can be within a time frame, you can before or after, that kind of stuff. Yeah, real, real common scenarios. So yeah, if, you've, if you have reused code like that uh, across projects, let's collect it. Let's put it together. And uh, Ecto Commons looks like a good beginning for that. At the time of this recording, Ecto 3.5 is nearing a release. Most of the changes we discussed with Mike Benz a couple episodes ago has to do with parameterized types, redacted field, Ecto enum. Also, check out EctoSQL for a few changes in the SQL side of things. And that's it for the news. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Jesse Herrick. Jesse is a software engineer in Columbus, Ohio, and we're glad that he's able to join us. He shared a really cool blog post that I wanted to be able to talk about. I guess we'll just jump right in there. So, Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, Jesse, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more background about where you're currently working and what kind of problems you're solving. Sure. Um, so I'm a software engineer in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I work remotely for a company called Little Lines. 
Little Lines is a web consulting agency based in Dayton, Ohio, which is actually my hometown. And uh, yeah, mainly the types of problems we solve is whatever our clients happen to throw at us. And that makes it pretty interesting work. It is, it's the type of thing where you don't really know what's going to be happening from day to day. Um, sometimes we're tackling bugs on complex applications. Other times we get the, the joy of building out a, you know, a greenfield application. So um, we're kind of all over the place on things. But uh, we, we really enjoy uh, working on things in both Ruby on Rails and Elixir and Phoenix. The company started out as primarily a Ruby on Rails company, but we've been focusing a lot more recently on Elixir and Phoenix applications. That's interesting. I'd love to hear just in terms of uh, a consultancy, you know, some people come and maybe they have an existing project. So it's a Ruby on Rails. So you're working in Ruby on Rails. Now, I'm just curious about what the experience has been like with suggesting or or uh, promoting say, hey, we think Elixir is a good fit for this. What's that been like? Generally, we don't do that type of thing for existing applications because if that's the case, it's generally something that people are like, okay, we need new features or we need you to fix bugs in this Ruby on Rails application. In those cases, it is almost always something that is so already complex that to rewrite it would cost more money than the client would like to do at the moment. But when it comes to new projects, we focus on uh, promoting Phoenix and Elixir to clients who have something that they would like to scale. Um, because with, with Ruby on Rails, it's certainly possible to scale things, um, but you run into all, all sorts of different problems. I find that when you're using something with Elixir and Phoenix, when you tell clients that this is something that you won't have to run as beefy of a server, um, you won't have to run into a bunch of different bugs that you run into, specifically with Rails and with other applications that that have uh, mutable state. Um, that's something that that Elixir and Phoenix solve for us. And so when we come to clients, we try to promote uh, Elixir and Phoenix because it is something that really solves a whole bunch of problems that you could get otherwise in Rails. That being said, Rails is really nice to work with sometimes, but I have almost always found that when you're dealing with a legacy Rails application, it is too easy to make the types of mistakes that cost developer time down the line. And so I always find that when I'm jumping into an application and I see, okay, well, this this thing has like the controller is, is filled with logic that really should be placed elsewhere. I feel like Elixir and Phoenix, they don't necessarily force you to do things, you know, the, the quote unquote right way, but I feel like they, they guide you toward that path. You know, when you have things like, like context, which Elixir has, which Rails, you can extract things into service objects, which is something we like to do at Little Lines because it makes things more maintainable. I found, uh, also that there's, there's a lot more magic in Rails than there is in Elixir and when you're coming from going back and forth between uh, Phoenix and Rails, you really do begin to notice those things where you're like, wait, where is this variable coming from in Rails? Or, or something could be defined five files away and you don't see it. Whereas in Elixir and in Phoenix, you have to pass in that variable. Sometimes there's a little bit of macro magic, but really that's, that's kept to a minimum, just mainly to save developer time. So that's what I really enjoy about, about Phoenix. And that's why we tend to, to promote Phoenix, especially for applications that are performance heavy or that the client would like to be performance heavy. And then one other aspect of that is that Live View. Live View is, I think, a big game changer because we as a company, we, we mainly use Vue for uh, applications that need something with a kind of heavier front end. 
not solely API based, but something that's, you know, something, something you need interactivity, you know, say with a, a form, you need to add different fields, whatever else, you know, if it's something that's more complex than something you would want to solve and just like jQuery, if the file gets too big, you should, you know, you, that's when we begin to think about, okay, maybe we should throw view in here. But then, of course, you have to deal with all of the problems you have to deal with with JavaScript. Uh, my main focus is on the back end, and so I hate dealing with JavaScript. And so I think a lot of other people have that same feeling where they're like, oh, this is awesome. I barely have to touch JavaScript. And obviously, in my article, I uh, touch a lot of JavaScript. But it's still, it's still I, I feel like LiveView really saves you from having to deal with a lot of the problems with you know validation, for example, of forms and uh, keeping state between different things. I think that uh, I think that Phoenix is really has really shown itself to be a robust solution for clients, and that's why we like it. Well, that was a, a great segue to start talking about this article that you wrote. So I just want to introduce this as uh, you know when when you're talking about Phoenix applications, one of the examples that I see held up a lot, especially in the early days, was hey, look with WebSockets and channels, you can create chat applications. And super simple. And you can have presence, and which is really impressive, right? Like That is really cool stuff and really hard to do with other solutions. And you can pull together very quickly. So what I was impressed with your article is you kind of said, yeah, that's cool. Let's take it to the next level. And he adds video, you know, using WebRTC. And it's like, you know, doing video chat with a text chat. And it's like, that is cool. Because like, that is, I, I thought it was an awesome showcase for how you are involving JavaScript, you know, things have to happen in the browser. And it's not a purely server side, like live view, you know, like there are hooks and things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so why don't you kind of maybe give us a, a little bit of an intro to what this project is that you created and this little blog post that you wrote up? Sure, this project mainly just began because I was curious. I was curious about how WebRTC works. Um, I had Maybe, I mean, I had played around it with a, a little bit, you know, like they have random samples on the WebRTC hacks website and that sort of thing. But I was really curious because when I think of Phoenix, I think about channels, I think about message passing, I think about all sorts of things like that. I was trying to come up with mainly something that would be educational for people, but I also thought of something that would be interesting to me to write about. That is why I decided, okay, well, everyone does, everyone does things with chats, right? Everyone, every, in Phoenix, I mean, uh, everyone does things in chats using channels and like that's, that article's been written 20 times. Everyone who writes about a WebRTC, they do these like kind of, I would say frivolous examples of WebRTC where they're like, okay, here's how you start up the video in your browser. And then they say, but also, they say also on the same device, we're going to load up the quote unquote remote video. And to me, that's not exciting because it's on the same device. Like if I just wanted to play the video on the same device, I could use other software. And so what's fascinating to me about WebRTC is that you can do a, a you can do Zoom, basically, but you can make it yourself. And so to me, I was like, I want to know how to do this because, you know, Zoom's great in some ways, but they, Zoom obviously has its problems, which I, I talk about briefly at the beginning. Some of them are, some of them are technical, some of them are political, you know, but like, what I find interesting about WebRTC is that it, it feels like this type of thing that like everyone kind of touched briefly in an article, but never actually dove deep. And so that's why I wanted to dive deep on this. And I wanted to see how could you go about this? And the reason why I chose Phoenix for it was, was pretty self-evident because when you, when you think about WebRTC signaling, which is basically the process by which you tell one user that the other exists, 
when you think about that, you, you think, oh, of course, Phoenix would be perfect for this because Phoenix has channels and message passing, and this is perfect. If you can create a chat application so easily in Phoenix, then it might be easier uh, or there might be easy enough to essentially uh, create something similar, but with video. But I wanted to take this even further, and I wanted to do it with multiple users. Because to me, you can do WebRTC, and I'm, I'm sure there's a few tutorials out there about how to you know, build out a full-fledged solution with you know, uh, one computer and another computer. But when it gets to multiple computers, there's all these different solutions. There's, there's three different patterns, which I'm not going to go into all of those. But um, uh, basically, I was curious about how to do something fully decentralized, something where the, the Phoenix application would act only as a signaling server to let users know where each other are. And then I want to do what's called a mesh architecture to allow the users to connect to each other in a kind of decentralized way. It is peer-to-peer, but there's still that server in between. And so that's something I got really fascinated on. And I thought, well, how hard can it be? Um, and it turns out it's not that hard, but it's a lot of a lot of pain. And that's why I feel like a lot of people touch WebRTC. They go, this is not fun to work in. And then they, uh, you know, they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess, uh, you know, that was interesting. And then they, they don't really touch it again. But I really wanted to build out something completely. And so my goal was not to build some sort of like full-fledged WebRTC solution because there's tons of those that exist. I wanted to give people the starting ground for understanding how WebRTC works and how that they could they could build solutions for themselves. So that way, you know, if someone has a client come to them and they say, "Oh, well, I'd like to build in some sort of, you know, video chat functionality into my into my site." They don't have to go looking at a third-party API because there's tons of those that are saying, "Oh, you know, you drop in this API and you'll be able to to load this." I wanted people to be able to say, "Oh, yeah, I can build that," you know, and and to have a, a good framework to build upon. And so that's that was my inspiration for Little Chat was was mainly educational. Nice. There's a lot there uh, that we could all unpack. So one of the things you just mentioned is that the, the name of the project is called Little Chat. Uh, one of the things I'm just going to make sure that you, dear listener, know is that there's a link to his GitHub project in the show notes. So you can check that out and kind of follow along and start to see and you know even download and, and do it yourself and just kind of run it locally and see what that's like. I love that you put a lot of time and effort into this article. It is totally worth the looking at and the read because it is a long, in-depth, step-by-step kind of a breakdown. And and as I was looking at it, I was like, man, I hope they GitHub repos in here somewhere because like, this is awesome. <laughs> For you, dear listener, like it is a, a great resource. I encourage you to check it out. This did feel like a, a fairly ambitious project. You said this is like really, you know, wanting to just kind of explore it and kind of educational purposes for yourself. Was there any potential business use or idea that you had in the back of your mind saying, hmm, I wonder if I could my only other inspiration for this was that I was thinking, you know, maybe maybe Little Lines can migrate off of Zoom and go to Little Chat. And really, the only thing that's stopping us at this point is that we don't have uh, screen sharing capabilities yet. But that's actually something that is fairly easy within the context of WebRTC to implement yourself. Um, all you have to do, depending on the browser, which is what makes WebRTC such a pain to work with, depending on the browser, um, you can basically select, instead of your own webcam, you can select the actual user's screen, which is really cool because you're doing that within the browser. You know, Zoom is a local application, and so it has access to, to more capabilities for doing that sort of thing. But it is really fascinating to me that it is possible to actually take a screenshot of the screen from the browser. Yeah, I didn't realize that WebRCC could do screen share. That's cool. It can also do file transfer in peer-to-peer chat, which is really fascinating. Very cool. Maybe that's a good point to kind of jump into the examples that you had in your article where you talked about, you know, needing to do hooks and kind of 
what was your experience like? You said, you know, you got this live view process and maybe you can just kind of walk us through some kind of like the architecture overview from the live view perspective. The live view process doesn't have access to the browser. So kind of how did that get hooked up and what was that like? One technical hurdle that I had to overcome in this is that in order to pass data from the the uh, live view to the client's browser, you actually have to create a, a Phoenix hook, which if you've used live view before, you know the Phoenix hooks. You can essentially, you put a uh, an HTML element into it. And, in, and if it, say if this HTML element needs something more interactive, you can add a hook. And then inside of your JavaScript, you can say, okay, this is the, I don't know, uh, this is the quote random hook and the random hook just displays a, a random number. And then that way you can hook in, say, a random JavaScript library into it. But with WebRTC, what you need to be able to do is you need to pass specific types of data from one user to another one, but not just to their their browser, not just to their DOM, you know, you need to actually pass it to their JavaScript. And so you need to be able to tell, essentially tell their browser, hey, you need to put this into the WebRTC session for another user. And so that is where things get really complex. I found this to be a little bit messy. And so if I was to do this again, I would want to look into it a lot more specifically, whether it would be a better option to include a channel specifically for that type of message passing. That's something where I felt this feels a little hacky. This this feels to me like it feels unclean, you know? And from what I read on on uh, various GitHub issues describing this type of problem, it doesn't seem like something that's going to be added in the future, uh, the, the ability to pass specifically data to a user's JavaScript. And so I think that is something that is best handled through Phoenix channels. That's why Phoenix channels are there. But the problem is there's sometimes some interaction issues when you have both live view and you're setting up a, a Phoenix channel at the same time. And so I wanted to see how it was possible to do it through live view itself in the, in live view's purest form. And I think that I have a, a solution that, that does the job very well. Essentially, the way that works is, uh, and, and in fact, I can go through the WebRTC architecture if you'd like. I can describe the flow. But essentially, if you're sending a, a, a WebRTC offer to another user, you're sending specific SDP data. It depends. Sometimes you need a full full uh, JSON object. Sometimes you just need a string. You need to send that to another user. That user needs to identify which session that use that uh, that SDP string is coming from, and then it needs to in JavaScript it needs to take that and put it in as oh here is a new offer from this user. What I ended up doing was I created essentially a span tag that has uh, a Phoenix hook that has different data attributes that include whatever data is necessary. And so that made it pretty easy and pretty simple to be able to pass this data from uh, one user to another and into their JavaScript. The only caveat is that you ended up having to create a bunch of span tags. They never see the span tags. But to me, that felt kind of messy. I would have preferred to have just passed the data and not have a growing list of span tags that says STP offer, you know, everything else. And of course, you could you could manually clean those up as well. That was the only part that felt kind of messy. But I feel like I have a nice working solution for that type of, of message passing specifically into the, the JavaScript for WebRTC. I feel like WebRTC is something is one of those things that is so JavaScript heavy that 
it does rely on on the data being passed purely through through JavaScript. And so this did feel a little hacky. So are you saying that you have a certain amount of data that on the server and you kind of needed to pass it up to the front end and you used HTML data attributes to get it to the front end from the server? Yeah, essentially. Essentially that was the way it worked. You had to you had to essentially generate these things on the client side always. And so let's say that I'm trying to establish a call with you. What I'm doing first is in, in this architecture is I am sending a request to you to create an offer to me. So I'm sending this request first. I, I then tell the Phoenix application, hey, um, they're using Phoenix presence. You can tell which users are connected. I can say, hey, I want to make a call to this specific user or I want to make a call to all the users on the, on the specific channel. I take that message, I send it to Phoenix saying, hey, pass this along to this user ID here. That then sends to your browser. The live view would then create an HTML element because there is basically a variable that just loops through that. It would create a new element. That element has a specific Phoenix hook, which then has access to the data attributes, which have my information on it. And so then you would be able to create an offer send it back to me, and it's the same process over again. But then I would be creating an answer to your offer. But essentially, the intermediary is you have the Phoenix application and the live view to pass that data to a specific user. And then luckily through the JavaScript, you're able to actually push that data back to the server and then back to me. But I then have to go through the process of creating an HTML tag and then pulling in that data and then creating an answer. And then the process repeats itself several times. In WebRTC, there's like four to five different things happening at any one time. And so it ends up creating several, you know, maybe 20 total tags if you're just doing a, you know, a a three-person call. And so I don't feel like it's that big of a drag. But if I was to do something that was for a real production app, I would want to consider possibly creating an additional channel to pass that data back and forth. But I do feel that it's really nice to be able to use Phoenix Presence with the live view to dynamically create the, the video tags for the different users. So there's, there's trade-offs to, to that sort of thing. But I found that I was able to make it work pretty well with live view. There's this really cool feature that kind of flew under the radar. And I just kind of ran across it randomly because I, I like to check the, the live view change log. And I come across this feature that says, add ability to reply to a push event from the server. And I'm like, what does this even mean? Or add push event for pushing events from the server to the client. And there's no docs on it at all. But it sounds kind of like what you're saying. Like you have some data on the server, you need to push it to the client. So I tried it out the other night. You literally on your live view process, you can reply with a push event and your client side code inside of your mounted function, you can you can define a this dot handle event and you will receive that on the client. So it's the opposite. Like it's going from server to client rather than client to server. That's exactly what I was looking for at the time. How yeah. how long has this feature existed? Um looks like July seventh it came out, but like it flew totally under the radar. Like there's no docs on it. Yeah, that was a, that was around the time when I was writing this. So I might end up uh, rewriting some of the elements to use that feature. So that'd be great if you could send me a link. That would, I think that would, that would solve the major issue. And then I think that this could be a fully-fledged production solution. I'm glad you brought that up, Cade. Because I know Cade had had some practical, actual working experience with that. And I, I have not, but I was aware of it through Cade. What I love about that, though, is I think that gives you that ability to treat that live view more like a channel, where you can have some of those 
some of those messages being passed up and down through the hook objects. Like on the client side, in the browser, you can have like a hook JavaScript object and it can fire different events or like methods on it. I haven't done a ton of channels, so that wasn't my first impression. I feel like they're very in tune to like major features because this was one of the things that I was thinking to myself. I've done exactly what Jesse's talking about. Like so many times I've like added in all these data attributes to get data up to my hook to do some certain things. And then one day there's like no talk about it. All of a sudden it just appears in the change log. So I just love, I love how in tune they are. It's like they use their own product and they like come across the same problems that I'm coming across. They add the features. It's great. I just found it and I, I put the documentation in the chat. This is awesome. This is exactly what we needed. Check the show notes for the link to that uh, function. So Jesse, returning back to this topic. So one of the things I thought was really cool is the idea that you have multiple users connected and they each have their own live view, right? They're own connected to their own live view and you're needing to be able to communicate between them and you found a good use for PubSub there. So maybe you could kind of walk us through what that was doing for you. So essentially, all PubSub is doing is you're subscribing to the... You have a room ID because you're creating a, a specific room to chat with your friends in, right? And uh, so basically, you're you're using PubSub as a form of... I think of it as like a mini channel, essentially. So you're subscribing to the room ID, and that is its own subscription. And so whenever data gets passed to the room ID, such as, for example, uh, the presence of a new user or the exiting of a new user, every single person who's connected via their live view gets a notification. And then we can do things with that through live view and also through JavaScript. We also connect to the user's individual. uh, Basically, I created a UUID for them. And basically, they connect to that channel or I guess that PubSub with that specific UUID And that is the functionality which allows users to pass messages to each other. Because otherwise, especially when you're working with things like peer connections, you need to be able to send a message to a specific user with data that is only useful to those specific users. And so even though you're connected on the broader channel, in order to hook up a a WebRTC connection and a peer connection between multiple users especially, you need to be able to directly message one user with an offer, the other user responds with an answer, and then you need to be able to do what's called ICE negotiation between the two. And so you need to be able to pass messages between the two users. And so essentially, that's all that the PubSub does, is it allows us to use Phoenix Presence to keep track of users, and it also allows the users to pass those WebRTC messages between each other. What I just want to point out with that, which I think is totally cool, right? I think it's just how much power is already built in and available in some of these packages like PubSub and Phoenix and Channels. I think it's it's just incredible when you think about it, like trying to build the same type of technical solution in a different framework or a different library, you know, like, like, like in Rails or in Node or something like that, just how much more difficult that would be. I think it's awesome. And I, I think it's a, a showcase kind of example, like what you're kind of putting together here is I can pull together all these different technologies that are all built in and available. None of them are commercial. They're all open source. I can just pull them together and have a really impressive demo uh, of just like showing how I can communicate all these and coordinate these different processes on the back end and, and get this, you know, even cross server communication happening if needed. So I just think it's great. I love that this exists and it's available for us. And uh, if I can give a comparison to Rails, 
Um, I actually went from, you know, writing this article, building this out, and I was also working on another uh, Phoenix application, going from that to working on a project where a client essentially needed this interactivity. They were doing polling before where they were in Rails, and they were, you know, they were just saying, okay, uh, has this thing been updated? Has this thing been updated? Like every five seconds, going to me thinking, oh, well, this would be perfect for WebSockets because that way you can immediately, you know, you have a bunch of users connected. You need to be able to take these users to this different page or pass this different data to them. I thought, oh, this would be perfect. And so I looked into Rails's kind of copy of Phoenix Channels, which is Action Cable. And that to me is not as easy to understand and not, it doesn't flow as well, I think, as Phoenix Channels, because Phoenix Channels, you have a very clear subscription. But in uh, Rails's Action Cable, you have to basically, you can, you can subscribe to specific, to specific objects, but you can also subscribe to specific channels and you have to do author, uh, or authentication in all these different ways. And so I found it to be needlessly complex for what it does. And I think, well, I don't really want to speak for what Rails was thinking on it, but I think Rails was trying to do things the Rails way. And to me, there was so much, there's so much magic involved that, and, and you still have to deal with the JavaScript of it in this, in this kind of strange way. And of course, that can vary if you're on an older application, which this one was, which we had upgraded, it was still using sprockets. And so you have to, uh, you know, import things using sprockets and all sorts of other things. It just, it gets really complex in that way. And so it was not very enjoyable to implement that in Rails versus implementing something like this in LiveView or in Phoenix. It feels much better. So I just want to point out to you, uh, dear listener, if you're interested in just kind of seeing what can be done with a chat app in WebRTC. There's a, a an open source project called Jitsi, which also has commercial elements to it that you can use. I'm just going to have a link to that in the show notes in case you haven't seen that. But that's doing WebRTC peer-to-peer video and chat and screen sharing. And so I've never actually played with WebRTC trying to do it myself. So I'm just curious, Jesse, like, do you have any resources or anything you could kind of share for someone who is wanting to kind of start playing in this space? Uh, aside from just being able to look at your project, is there anything else you can point them to? There's a few articles. Uh, Mozilla has documentation that is a little incomplete uh, in a lot of ways and incredibly confusing if you don't understand the actual flow of WebRTC. Another article that I found incredibly useful, it's kind of old, it's from 2016, it's called Untangling the WebRTC Flow. And uh, I write about the WebRTC flow. I think I have, I think it's either 14 or 16 steps. I think it's 14 steps I have in my article about how a WebRTC peer connection is established. And so that, I think, when you're implementing WebRTC, that is the hardest thing to, to, to wrap your head around. It's not the actual implementation details. It's understanding how WebRTC actually works. It takes thinking things through. For me, it took drawing things out. I had this this whiteboard. I, I looked crazy. You know, I had a different like arrows pointing to different users because I was trying to do it with multiple users. That article was also incredibly useful, and um, that that helped me understand things a lot better because it puts it in simpler terms. And so, I think that the best articles on WebRTC are those that combine the code elements, but also the theory elements of it, because WebRTC has its own flow that if you don't understand, you're not going to get. Because unlike other things, it is something that is very concurrent, and so you have multiple things happening at one time, and so you have to break it down into all of those steps, and you have to understand in your brain, which is why. Which which is why uh, Phoenix and Elixir are are useful prerequisites for this because they they also have a lot of things happening concurrently. 
you need to understand in your mind that there's going to be a bunch of things happening at once and you just need to write the hooks for those and you need to think about it from one side at a time. And so when you're implementing it, you need to think about, okay, I'm user A or, you know, you can give them a name if you'd like. I'm user A. I'm going to focus on the flow for user A, understanding that other things are going to be happening at the same time. I will then implement for user B, but I will implement it from user A's side when I'm getting a connection from user B. These types of resources, I have another one from uh, the HTML5 Rocks website, and all of these are also, I believe, on the, uh, on, on the GitHub README. And if, and if anyone has other resources for it, I'm, I'm happy to accept pull requests for the GitHub README. I found that that was also a pretty useful article because it explained how to implement these things in, in the JavaScript itself. You have to use async functions and, and things like that. I think that all of these articles combined, plus I'm sure plenty of other resources, uh, there, was, there was one YouTube video uh, I remember from, from Google, I think it was from 2015, that, that talked about the WebRTC flow. So it was, it, was various, uh, it was various resources that helped me really wrap my head around things and then that helped me implement it because the implementation is constantly changing, uh, which is one of the things that makes WebRTC incredibly annoying is the fact that different browsers have different requirements. There was one point, so I, I use Firefox as my, as my main browser. and so. I tried to do a, a video chat with my, one of my coworkers who was on Chrome and it just didn't work. And I was like, what is going on here? And so I had to essentially, even though in the WebRTC implementation, it says that this is not necessary. I had to manually, like I had to have an if statement inside of the hook for that specific user, basically saying, I think it was something like, if there's an offer pending, just don't even define this function, which to me... Uh, it seemed very silly that they that Chrome just wasn't implementing the WebRTC uh, the WebRTC the way that it was supposed to be implemented, or maybe maybe they think that that's the way it's supposed to be implemented. But don't even get me started on iOS Safari. That is something where if anyone has the solution for it, I'm uh, also happy to accept a pull request. Um, that's something I I looked into a lot, and there's resources on on building an app using WebRTC, but there's not as many resources on how to actually get it working with uh, iOS Safari. And so uh, Safari also was its own beast of a browser to deal with. And so basically with all these browsers, you have to do all these little things to appease them. Finding these different resources was incredibly useful. I believe there's one more resource I, I forgot to mention. I have it in the, the GitHub, I believe. It's a, it's a glossary, or it's in the article. I referenced it a few times. There's a glossary of WebRTC terms um, by this guy who is an absolute pro at WebRTC. I highly recommend reading, reading his articles as well because he really goes into detail about the, the different elements and he really knows his stuff. Yeah, I was just looking over the untangling the WebRTC flow and you realize that it is a fairly complex protocol, right? And it's, it's a nice article because it, it has split out with like, you know, the, the traditional Bob and Alice and like the different user roles. It is a complex protocol where you're having offers and they must be accepted and responses. And, you know, so that, that's a great resource. Uh, thank you for pulling all that together. Yeah, it was incredibly useful to me. And, and that he has on there uh, this very, you know, this very crazy chart and even trying to like wrap your head around that and, and thinking, oh, but these things are happening at the same time. And so you think, oh, well, this thing has already happened by the time I get to this point in the flow, but we haven't even talked about it yet. I found that you really have to write things out to truly understand what's going on. And even then, it takes a little bit of time before you can really say, oh, okay, I understand how this is flowing. Of the topics that we haven't covered yet or, or anything else, is there anything you, you want to make sure we talk about? I think that for me, the important element of this project was the educational aspect of it. And so I think that there is really something to 
building it out step by step and uh, trying to to figure out how these things are flowing together. I think that that's something that's that's really satisfying as well because then you can hop on a call with someone on your own WebRTC application. Another thing I noticed about WebRTC is it just with building it out is that everyone was like, wow, this is the clearest image like I've ever seen in a video chat. I found that it was very cool to see such clear audio and video from from people that you can that you can uh, uh, connect with. And so I guess I just highly recommend, you know, pulling down the app and toying around with it and, and host it yourself. And it's just a fun project to play around with. So I have to ask, what was your favorite part while you were building this? I think that the Phoenix parts were the most enjoyable parts, really. Like I, when you're doing things like dealing with user presence, Phoenix made that super easy. I didn't have to worry that 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 is, uh, you know, you can see in the article, that's a part where I'm like, oh, yeah, you just just add in this for for Phoenix presence, which, of course, that is incredibly technologically complex. But the fact that you just have that right in the box, it's not it's not some sort of other package you have to install. You just have that out of the box with Elixir and Phoenix. You can manage user presence and you can have diffing of, you know, user exits, a user enters the ability to manage that and also the ability to pass data so easily and to have users subscribing to uh to different events and different you know and, and different pub subs i think that that was something that made it really enjoyable because you you know you can build out the essentially the backbone for this incredibly easy using phoenix and and live view and the hardest part is really just wrapping your head around webrtc well, thank you, Jesse, for coming on and sharing with us this process that you've gone through and the, the learnings and experiences. And so I encourage you, dear listener, check out his blog post. It is a, a wonderful detailed write-up. The GitHub repo little chat is something that uh, would be totally fun to play with and just to look at and how, see how some of these things are pulled together. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, what's the best way to do that? Um, mainly, I would say through my uh, GitHub, uh, my GitHub profile. You can find me basically all places online at Jesse Herrick. Um, and that's just my name with no spaces, no underscore, no nothing. I'm not very much on social media anymore. But uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me or you know you have a comment or whatever, feel free to contact me via email. You can find my email on my GitHub. And uh, also, if you have any comments on the application or if you have any changes that you'd like to make, I'm very open to pull requests on that. So um, thank you very much for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.